So like I constantly am thinking in that framework of best case, worst case, what am I okay losing in order to gain X, Y, and Z. And so sometimes the risk that I want to take, the upside isn't appealing, but the downside is horrible. So I'm like, oh, I should not do that. Or other times it's like, well, the upside sounds pretty good. And I think the likely outcome sounds amazing too, but the downside's too huge. Can't do that. And so I try to only take risks where that upside and downside ratio is in my favor and, and I accept it. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Sam Parr. Sam is the co-host of the highly popular business podcast, My First Million. He also founded the media company, The Hustle, back in 2016, which was acquired by HubSpot in 2021. Today on the show, we discuss why being an alcoholic can be your greatest superpower, Sam's inspiring story, and how he went from jail to selling his company to HubSpot the top six lessons he's learned from giving up alcohol and why that led to tremendous personal growth, how to instantly upgrade your approach when contacting someone via DM or email, his contrarian views on money and happiness, a simple and effective approach to taking calculated risks and managing uncertainty in life, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Sam Parr to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But a good place I think I'd like for us to start is one of the things that's super fascinating and inspiring to me about your story that I think my audience will appreciate is I've heard you say the same thing that's made you an alcoholic and led to your addiction is the same thing that's made you successful as an entrepreneur and as a business person. What did you mean by that? Um, yeah, it's just like the impulsiveness of like, I think that I don't know anything about alcoholism or substance abuse other than my own experience, but there's like an impulsiveness of like, I have to do something mm. and it's, it, and that carries over to other facets of life. At least it does for me. And so it's just like a effort. I'll figure it out later, which doesn't work in a lot of facets of life, but it's, that attitude is quite successful when it, or quite useful when it comes to business. Yeah. For sure. I mean, because I think like as, as an addict, I think what happens is you just, you don't care about the risk. You just keep going no matter what you're like, I don't care if I fail. Like, I'm just going to get to this thing, like no matter what, because it's so important to me and I'm not going to stop, um, until, until I get it. I think like one of the other things that is really awesome about your story is that you, the role that fitness and, and health has played not only in your sobriety, but just in your life in general. So who were you before you found health and fitness and how has it been transformative for you? So I was grew, growing up, I was very fit. I was never healthy because I didn't eat good, but basically I was a division one track and field athlete. I used right. to be like a very, very elite athlete. And then I quit because I like got into partying basically. And I got fat and then I, um, quit boozing and that was hard, but I basically like one addiction went from like alcohol and then to sugar. 
And I was cool with that because it helped me not drink. So I was like, whatever, who cares? I'll worry about it later. That same attitude. And so I just like ate tons and tons of candy. I could eat M&Ms, like only M&Ms for like a week straight. I like love that. Um, but then I met my wife and she was a health nut. And she like was like, hey, that, is, that has a lot of carbs. And I'm like, what the hell is a carb? I don't know <laughs> what that means. And I remember seeing a picture of myself with her. And I looked very lumpy. I think I was 25% body fat. And I looked horrible. And I remember seeing these guys on Instagram. And I was like, I'm way more athletic than those guys are. But I'm fat right now. I want to look like that. I think I could do that. And so I, my friend group, I like texted them. I go, I am officially going to become an Instagram fitness influencer today. And so I just like made it my identity. And then, so I kind of became that I kind of got fit again, but I was always like pretty naturally gifted at athletic stuff, but I just ate horribly. Like it was really bad. Um, and so, but once you get older, even when you're younger, you're like, no matter how hot the oven burns, you know what I'm saying? Like you can still get, you can still put, you can still get fat. And I learned that the hard way. Yeah. And, and given that you had like this addictive past and everything, and I know sometimes when, when that's in the background, it can make it more challenging to like stay on the the healthier path, specifically with eating. Like what were some of the things that helped you like early on in that journey, other than your wife holding you accountable and seeing some inspiration on Instagram, like what helped you stay consistent? Well, a reading a ton like just reading like different books helped, but that'd be like, I, I don't want to like discount this because I, I think it's unfair to the listeners, but like I sold my company. And so I had money and I had a lot, a lot more free time than before, before my excuse was I'm too busy. I can't get fit or I, I should just eat whatever's available. Then I sold my company and I had more time and more money. And so like that helped. Although now I realize that that was actually a bullshit excuse. Like no matter how little time you have, I can make it work and I just prioritize it. But that, that helped. And then I also hired a nutritionist for like 250 bucks a month. I use this service called my body tutor, which I love. And they like phone call you either once a day or once a week, depending on which uh, service you sign up for. And they, and they like educate you about your week's plan and what your next week's plan is and things like that. And then I hired a fitness coach. Um, just like I had in college because I was an athlete. And so basically like accountability. So making it to where like, I don't have to think I just do what they say and having very clear cut goals. So every quarter I create a goal, um, where it's like, I want to do a NFL combine and I want to score average for a wide receiver, or I want to run this time, or I want to squat 450 pounds, or I want to bench whatever, or I want to do this or that. I always have a goal. Um, I can't just like, I like doing it, but I can't go just to go. I have to have a target. I have to be competitive. That's awesome, man. I love how you, sh you shoot for these like insane goals, which I think is, um, incredibly like inspiring. We were talking before we recorded about, you know, one of the things that it really scared me was like jumping into a pool with like Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese and how that was super intimidating for me. Um, could you ever see yourself, doing anything like that, not, not specifically like with, maybe with them, but something where you're actually like in the arena with like some of these people who are like some of the best in sport while you're trying to like achieve whatever it is you're looking to achieve. So a few quarters ago, I trained for my, for an amateur boxing match mm. and I ended up backing out because I had kind of, I had hurt someone one time. I hit them a little bit too hard and I hurt them. And then I had gotten hurt. I got hit in the head really hard and kind of went out for a second. 
And I backed out because I was like, oh, I've got way too much to lose. I can't do this. And so I've wanted to like be in the arena and like do this stuff when it comes. But like, there's a few things I would never do. So anything that involves like these long distance runs where you have to like sleep overnight outside and stuff like that. I'm not tough enough to do any of that stuff. I would go, I would maybe go to, to Laird's. Maybe it depends. I don't know if I would go all out, but uh, I've done like a half Ironman. I probably would do an Ironman. I just don't really like it, but I would do most things, but I don't do any like, or uh, I don't like doing certain stuff where it involves like being outside all day. I also hated the Ironman because it took so freaking long to train for. Uh, it like didn't feel like it was like conducive to like longevity, but I would do some in the arena stuff. I've You know, like the mega ramp that like you see the skateboarders go down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to do one of those. Uh, and I skate still. I'm I'm pretty good. I'm I'm a good skater. I think I can do one of those. So that's something I really want to do. And I've always wanted to do the really steep downhill mountain biking where they go like 60 miles an hour. That's awesome, man. That's it's super impressive. Um, I I think like one of the things that I'd like to provide some context for for the listeners is you mentioned you you sold your company and you you made some money and you got a lot of free time now and you didn't start here. Like there was so much that happened before this. And I know you started to to drink in in school to kind of like deal with some insecurities and some discomfort so talk a bit about like your your childhood how you grew up and then how that led you down this destructive path i grew up in missouri just like a fairly normal uh household but i think that like i had some things happen when i was a kid that made me very anxious and so Mm. at a very young age i suffered from panic attacks Mm. i also think that like you, I didn't realize it at the time, but in Missouri or where I was like drinking is part of the culture. Like it's very embedded. So it's like every single day after work, you go to the bar and I just thought that was normal. And because of that culture, that attitude where it's okay to have a beer, like during all meals and things like that. And also I think there's some genetic things going on. And I had an, a really bad panic issue. Mm. I think that when I like turned like 19, I realized like, Oh, this alcohol, like it makes me not get panicky. That makes me feel good. And it makes me a little bit numb. And so I don't freak out. And so I kind of use, I use it as medicine. Uh, like I never liked any drugs really. Like every once in a while we would do stuff, but like, I really didn't like weed. I didn't like anything really. And for some reason, alcohol just made me calmer where I didn't, I couldn't freak out because I, it was just a panic that I would have every once in a while. And so when I was like 20, I started going hard. And then there was a time for like two or three years where I was intoxicated basically every day. Mm. Um, And I ended up uh, quitting sports in college because I opened up a hot dog stand in Nashville, Tennessee. And the reason I opened up a hot dog stand was because I was like, I'm my own boss. I'm outside. I can act silly because I'm just talking to like, I I can act goofy while I'm selling this stuff. So it's okay. I can just drink on the job. It's no big deal. Like I don't have to use my brain too much. And so I, I did that. And then when I was in my early, early 20s, maybe 21 or 22, I got arrested a few times. So I got like a DUI and then I got in trouble for fighting. And then I had to go to jail for the DUI. And I was like, oh my God, I'm blowing it. Like, I feel like I have a lot of potential, but I'm absolutely blowing it. And so I heard about this company called Air Bed and Breakfast at the time. Now it's called Airbnb. And I emailed the founder and I like impressed him enough that he was like, hey, come to my office on Monday. And I was like, yes, sir. See you there. I go out there. He asked me to work at Airbnb when they were early ish. This was 2012. So not that early, but kind of early. They had maybe a hundred or 200 people. 
get the job offer, go back home to Nashville where I was living at the time, leave school, move all, move all my stuff out there. The day before I'm supposed to start, he was like, Hey, we can't hire you. We did the background check and you lied. You said you didn't have, you had, you had no arrest record. We don't hire liars. Uh, and so I was stuck out in San Francisco without anything. Uh, and that's when I started more companies and ended up working out. But basically from Missouri to Tennessee to California, started having issues when I was like maybe 19 all the way up to like 22, I think. Had a couple false starts where I quit and then I quit. It's 10 years ago this month. So however long ago that was, uh, 2013 or 14 or something, maybe it's nine years ago. I felt like I've been on top of the world since I quit, but it took a long time, you know, like to actually like feel life again because I was pretty much like lifeless and numb for like four years. It felt like, like people say my age and I'm like, I kind of feel like I'm 30 because I had like four missing years. I want to, I want to read this post that you wrote that you just reshared. I think it was like last week. And it says, I wrote that. What what year did I write that? In 14? Yeah. July 22nd, 2014. Yeah. And it says six things I learned from not drinking from one year. And it says, number one, booze makes me fat. Uh, we obviously, I guess, can understand why that that is, right? We, we know that it can impact your health and create excess um, calories and fuel. But the the one I want to focus on now is like, like exercise makes me feel badass. Like, why? How does exercise make you feel badass in a way that alcohol didn't? I joke with my friends where it's like I exercise and work out so I can kill and eat most everyone in the room or outrun them. And the reason I say that is because like there's a physical component of like, it feels good that like, oh, I can kick most people's ass or I can get away. Like there's like a physical, like I feel confident and I feel comfortable. Um, it also feels really fun to achieve and hit goals. It's really hard to do that when you're intoxicated all the time. And so when you set easy targets of lifting weight or, or running a certain distance, it feels awesome to like accomplish that. And also like the, the endorphins and the rush that you get, it's definitely not as, um, not the same, but it's similar in terms of the high that you get. And so it just made me feel alive. It just, it feels good to like sweat and be in pain and just know that at the end of the, uh, once you get to the other end, you're fine. You know, I, I, I just love that. I love going through hell and being all right at the end. How has fitness um, helped you with like your, your anxiety and, and panic and, and stuff like that? Has it been a tool for that? Yeah, for sure. Like if I, like, I, I just, I, I, my panic attacks and stuff, it's all related to like claustrophobia. I'm like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a freak about it. I don't like flying. I don't like subways. I don't like rooms without uh, uh, windows. I don't like elevators or feeling like confined. That's why like I'm flipped out about camping. Cause it's like, if I'm out in the wilderness and like no one can find me, that, that <laughs> freaks me out. And so like, I, I, I like to get worn out to the point to where like, it's like a dog, you got to walk your dog. Otherwise they like start going crazy. So I like that feeling. Um, but just like the feeling of like, I can do anything. So the reason I love like body, like working on my body is it's really fun to be like, all right, you have a goal and it's like most fitness goals are very, very simple. They're not easy, but they're simple. They're still hard, but it's like, all right, you want to lift this much weight. Okay. Then if you eat this much for this amount of time while doing this many reps and increasing weight. And you do that for six months, the odds that you can get close to or beat the weight that you want to lift are are good. Like that's the only way to get it done. Or you want to run faster. Okay. You got to put this many miles in. You have to make sure you do this, this, and this and weigh this much weight. The odds that you can get there are, are nice. And like, just that, just like the, the idea of like creating plans and following through, it just gives me comfort. And I, and I find a lot of like calming energy in the discipline of doing that. And then regarding like 
like discomfort and anxiety other than like the discipline and everything that fitness gives you? Like, what are some other things that have helped you like get comfortable with em- embracing discomfort and some of these um, uncomfortable emotions that might arise? Just like, well, accomplishing things in life mm. like helps. So like just getting older and accomplishing things and just constantly meeting all these really successful people convincing myself that like these feelings are normal. So I used to run this event called HustleCon and HustleCon, it was kind of like a Ted talk, but it was for startup founders. And I would get the founders of most startups from the 2012 to 2017 era that you know of. So WeWork, uh, Casper Mattresses, Bonobos, just like all these cool things, these brands that were launched in that era or were popular in that era. I would get to hang out with them backstage and I remember hearing them complain about like, they're afraid to fire this person because of the confrontation. They're stressed out about investors, whatever, like all this, these normal feelings that like you would think a, a rookie would have, but they weren't rookies. They were highly successful. And yet they were on like the cover of like New York times and all these business magazines and shit like that. And I just remember thinking, Oh wow. Like these guys are 10 times more successful than I am, but they're not 10 times smarter than me. And in fact, they have all the same problems I have. They just go through the motions and like push through anyway. And that was very encouraging. And so once I realized that like I can get most anything done and I can accomplish anything I want, and it was really just a matter of picking what I want. And I, it, it just has given me a lot of faith that like most obstacles are overcome. I, I can overcome uh, most obstacles. And so just like succeeding, whether in business or fitness or relationships, like I was always nervous about if whatever meet a girl or whatever and then just like learning how others do it and then adapting and changing my behavior has always given me a ton of confidence and it normalizes certain fears and behaviors that I thought were abnormal that makes sense um and so I want to go back to this list cuz there's a couple in here that I think are so important for people to remember and one of those things is number number 3 says um, people are attracted to me more. Like a lot of times I feel like people are worried that they're not going to have any friends or people aren't going to like them when they that stop drinking. That was my drinking, biggest fear, right? Why that are was you my more number attracted? One fear. That was my number one fear. It, I mean, when I, you know, I was 22 when I stopped or 23 and I was single and, I, and I'm so like the only way up until that point I had met girls was like, we're both drunk out at a bar and then you like hang out with them another time and you really hope like, Oh, are they going to like the real me? Like, and you have to drink in order to like, uh, make them like, uh, for the girl to like you and things like that. That was my biggest fear. I mean, that's most young men's fear, which is how do I meet girls or how do I get the guys to like me and accept me? And I just used to think I had to be this like loud, gregarious guy. And then I realized a, like on a really superficial level, you tell a girl that you have a, a drug habit or, an, or a drinking habit, and that's why you don't drink. That's kind of mysterious. And that's kind of like, like some chicks are like, Oh, I want to fix you. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's there. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's a little less important, but that's still like a cool perk of like, Oh, you must have a cool backstory. I'm interested. Tell me more. But th- another thing is like, if you're firm with your beliefs and you stick to your principles, that also makes you attractive to both men and women of like, Oh, I love, I'm very fascinated by someone who's made up the direction and they go that way. That's, that's a very, that's a very intoxicating feeling. Mm-hmm. And so once I learned that I was like, hell yeah, I'm using this to my advantage. And so people liked me a lot more to see that I was very adamant of saying, Nope. I like some people would tease me when I first started and I'm like, I don't drink. Don't even ask me that. Or don't, don't, don't give me a hard time. I said, no, no means no. And that type of attitude it, people flocked toward me because they thought that I had some type of answers, of, which of course I didn't exactly, 
but uh, like they liked the confident attitude and, and that was like another intoxicating drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People like confidence. They like assertiveness. They like people who are themselves. It's funny. Like we, I think I've definitely been guilty of this. We chase after the wrong things and we try to become somebody that we think somebody wants us to be, to get fulfillment, happiness, to be loved or whatever. But the very thing we're, ch we're chasing for just doesn't come from trying to be somebody else. It's only going to come from like being confident with who you are, being confident in your decisions. Like people are attracted to that. There's like a Venn diagram of like business and life and addiction and all that stuff. And at the middle of it is like the ability to control the outcome, not the outcome, but the, cause luck is real, but just believing that you can kick your debt in the universe and that you have control over your life. You know, I think someone uh, I heard say, you're the director of your own movie. I always felt that to be somewhat true, but I was being a punk and I wasn't actually living that life when I was had issues. And I thought, well, I can't kick these because that's just how I am. And then once I did, I was like, oh, I can accomplish literally anything. And like, it was as if I had bad eyesight and I finally put on glasses. Uh, when I and then also hanging out with really successful people, just people who accomplish things, and it's not really money, but it's like uh, you could be have an artist or like someone who like says like I'm going to be a songwriter and they write hit songs. Like it just just the idea of like I'm like a conqueror of my own life, and that like made me feel very. That just gave me a ton of comfort once I uh, bought into that and saw success. You brought up the importance of like the people you spend time with and having the this. Um picking up off of the energy of people that are around you and the success of people around you who have been like one or two of your biggest like mentors, um, you know, throughout the last five to 10 years. One of my best friends, his name is Jack Smith. When we were 29, he sold his company called Vungle for $800 million. And Jack's a weirdo. He's one of the weirdest people I know, like way before like psychedelics were a thing. He didn't, he, Jack doesn't drink either, but he loves psychedelics because he uses it medicinally to like overcome some uh, issues he had and like meeting someone that was like into that type of stuff of where they would like have like a problem and then go out and try new and weird things to solve it. I got a lot of inspiration from Jack Smith. So he's a very interesting person. The most interesting person lately that I've been able to hang out with is Rob Deerdick, the mm. famous skateboarder. He's been on the podcast a, a handful of times and I've chatted with him a bit. And I find him to be one of the more inspiring people I've ever met. And I, whenever I get to hang out with these people on the pod, some of their mojo definitely tends to wear off on you. So he's like someone lately who I find shockingly refreshing and fascinating. I just love like original thinkers because the world wants you to be like this vanilla, live this vanilla life. And I love people that kick the kick, kick that, uh, and, and, and make their own thing. So Rob Deerdick's another person who I really am fascinated by. That guy's incredible. Like every time I see his name pop up on a podcast, I'm always listening because I like you. I'm super inspired by his journey and how he, you know, had all this success in one arena and then he didn't stop him and he just went to the next thing and the next thing. And that guy is just full of wisdom, like how he manages his life, how his relationship with his wife, his family. Like, my gosh, man, I feel like I, it's like something it's, it inspires me just listening to him. And I'm sure that like having a face to face conversation or talking to him on the phone is, is even like, like a hundred times better, but I mean, yeah, he's a, he's super inspired. Yeah, man. He's fascinating. He's fascinating because it, for some reason he seems more relatable than like the Zuckerbergs of the world. I don't mm. think he's a genius. He might be, but I don't think he is. There's something about him where I'm like, I can do that if I want yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, and so he's really 
really fascinating to me. Well, I take a lot of pride. I think he was the first person or we were the first, he came on our podcast, my first million. And he, we were the, I think we were the first time that he came on as like a business guest and like Mm -hmm. a life guest as opposed to skating. And, uh, and then now he's blown up. He's everywhere. So he, he's cool. I, I take, I, on, I joke with him on the pot. I'm like, you're only successful because we made you that, uh, which obviously is not true, but he's cool. Yeah. He seems like an amazing person. And again, it's super inspiring what he's, what he's achieved. Um, going back to this list, cause there's a, there's a couple more, um, on here that are incredibly important for people to hear. And number four, again, this is something that a lot of people have a hard time with is having fun sober is hard. But but feels ridiculously ridiculously awesome when you do it right. How have you learned to have fun being sober? Waking up early and not having any regrets and being able to like go out and do things in the morning, like it feels phenomenal to like live life during the day because not a lot of good stuff happens after like eleven p.m. So it it it, it feels quite good. Um, my fun it's like way more in small groups. And so I have a joke where I say no new friends. Like I had, like once I got clean and everything, I met like these four guys and they're like my closest friends. And, um, it feels really nice to have those like one-on-one relationships that I I have now. Um, and they're, um, and like, I don't really want to be friends with that many more people. Like I I have my crew and that's what I need. (laughs) And so like, once I, once I developed that life became a lot more fun. Yeah. I mean, who you spend time with is is so important. I think so many times people are looking for like quantity of people. And I think the quality certainly matters way more. Number five, intense realism is a freaking amazing rush. What did you mean by that? A lot of my shit is about girls, to be honest, because I was single (laughs) when I wrote that. But like the first time you kiss a chick, like I remember being like intoxicated, like for all of them. Yeah. And then I remember like being so afraid to make a move with this woman who I went out with. And I was like, she likes me. I think I like her. Like this could work. Like I remember like the first move and I was so fucking afraid. I was so scared. And I remember it working out and I was like, oh my God, I'm on top of the world. I could do anything. Like I just remember that feeling of asking a girl out and like being smooth and cool without being intoxicated. Just like those types of things. Or if I was afraid to do something like now I have a, like once I got sober, I used to have this rule. If I see a girl who I like, I had three seconds to say hi to her. And I do that with a lot of other things where it's like, um, whenever I'm starting a business, like I, I, I'm really afraid to call, call this person and sell them or to talk to them about for advice. I, therefore I have to do it. And I've noticed that like, I just get a, a huge rush out of accomplishing those things. Now it's just normal. But when I quit, like the first year or two after quitting, it w- everything felt like that. All those all felt like new, new, new things to me, and it was like a rush. I I loved it. Super fascinating to me. I mean, I love that. Um, last one, number six, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I would love for you to get more in depth on this. When you control your emotions, you control your reality. Yeah, man. Up until recently, even like uh, maybe I, I I hadn't fully mastered that, but basically, if you look at if my emotions were a graph there would be it would be like it would look like a wave pool like extreme highs and extreme lows and that was fueled by alcohol i remember like being on alcohol and like it was always like the greatest thing ever or the worst thing and i don't want to be here at all Mm. and figuring out how to control emotions and uh, frankly I, i i still struggle with it uh but now it's way better where i try my hardest to be a smooth line to where nothing like gets me incredibly psyched but I'm also like not incredibly down. Like I'm pretty calm. I'm way calmer now. And like, 
I think they teach this in uh, Stoicism in that book, Meditations, Marcus Aurelius. He talks about how like you tell yourself you're going to approach a bunch of dumb people today. The only thing that matters is like the thought and the reaction that I give it. And mm -hmm. so it's everything of all those six things that we are going through, as well as the previous things I said, it's all about like control. So like I control what I, what I do, my outcome, how I feel, like as long as I realize that I am in control, there's a lot of power there. And the emotions one is like the, like the last, that's like one of the last, uh, if there's like a hierarchy of like the hardest to achieve, but the most powerful emotions are right at the top. Yeah. I mean, there's so much you can control. And like, once you're able to, to master all that, I think life becomes, um, a lot easier. How do you, how do you deal with a lot of the stuff that you can't control? Because I know you've mentioned, we've talked about anxiety and panic. And a lot of times when you can't control things that, you know, exacerbates anxiety. I always do this exercise. So before I take any type of big risk, I always think like, let's just, we'll use the, a business as an example. When I was younger, I always say, what's the upside? So I paint the picture of what the upside is. What's the possible best cop? What's the best possible outcome? What's a uh, likely outcome? And I like say like, all right, are those cool? Do I like those? If yes. All right, let's go to the next exercise, which is what's the worst possible outcome. And I plan against those. So for example, the worst possible outcome is I run completely out of money. Okay. Do I want to accept that? I don't. Therefore, I'm going to save $500 and I'm going to call my parents and ask them, is it okay if I move in with you, if this doesn't work and the $500 will fly me home? Hmm. All right, great. Can I accept that? I can accept that, that that's the worst possible outcome. Or let's say I like, uh, that's still not good enough for me, or I don't have parents, whatever. Then it's like, all right, the worst possible outcome is I get a restaurant at, or I get a job at a restaurant or I get a job as an Uber driver. Therefore, I should go buy a car now, or I should make relationships with people at the restaurant. Like I think about those things through and it's like, all right, is that the worst possible outcome that I'm happy to accept? Yes. Therefore, I should move forward. So like I constantly am thinking in that framework of best case, worst case. So what am I, what am I okay losing in order to gain X, Y, and Z? And so sometimes the risk that I want to take, the upside isn't appealing, but the downside is horrible. So I'm like, oh, that's a, I should not do that. Or other times it's like, well, the upside sounds pretty good. And I think the likely outcome sounds amazing too, but the downside's too huge. Can't do that. And so I try to only take risks where that upside and downside ratio is in my favor and, and I accept it. It's a great process. I'm going to have to like write that down as you were saying that, because I was thinking, cause I'm, I'm looking to, to move to Austin by the end of the year. That's my goal. And I've gone back and forth for probably like, I mean, I don't know, like two years on like all the risk, the reward, risk, reward. And the biggest, re the biggest risk is, is money because it's like a lot of my businesses here and it's just new connections, new beginnings. And if I fail, like what's the worst thing that happens? And I keep going back and forth on that. And now I'm at the point where I'm like 97% in on moving and I know how I'm going to make money and I have revenue streams, but I wish I would have known like that process because you just simplified it so well. That was like the biggest thing yeah, I was struggling it with. Confidence, maintaining a clean diet, staying active and exercising discipline are key indicators of a healthy individual. The practice of discipline extends to various aspects of life, including sleep patterns, dietary choices, and overall body care. Embracing discipline not only yields short-term benefits, but also lays a strong foundation for long-term health. It is important to recognize that skin health is an integral part of this holistic approach and should not be disregarded. Fortunately, incorporating skincare into your daily routine can be effortless, and that's where Caldera Lab comes in. With their products clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging, Caldera Lab proudly stands as a leader in men's skincare. 
I'm a big fan of taking care of my skin and didn't realize I was only scratching the skincare surface by using store-bought products and getting a facial every few months. I'm a 35-year-old bachelor and spend a lot of time on camera, and I decided that I need to do an even better job at maintaining my healthy skin. After seeing many of my friends use Caldera Lab, I decided to try their top-notch products. Their formulas combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients and are simple to use. I've been using their regimen bundle twice a day and have already had several compliments about the difference in my skin. Caldera Lab's regimen routine begins with their clean slate, which is a balancing cleanser to get things started. Then I add their base layer, a nutrient-dense fortifying moisturizer to help hydrate my skin. Then I finish off with the good, which is their clinically proven multifunctional serum that helps my skin look and feel tighter and smoother. So if you want to upgrade your skin and confidence with products that use exceptional ingredients, head to calderalab.com and use my code Doug to get 20% off. Again, head to calderalab.com and use my code Doug to get 20% off. Be ready to experience a whole new level of health and skincare with Caldera Lab. Now back to the show. And you could literally write it down. You could be like, all right, I'll run out of money. Therefore, I should save $5,000, which is enough time for two months rent. And I'll put that 5,000 and just like a treasury. So it's just earning 5%. And I just can't touch that. It's like, and also I'll keep my monthly expenses down to blank, which means I have to have roommates. Am I willing to do that? Yeah. Okay. Then do it. No. Okay. Then I got to figure out how to save more money. You know what I mean? Like there's like a pretty logical uh, way you can go about it. And I, and I do it, I can do it really quickly in my head nowadays, but like I, I used to sit down and like go through that because like what I've noticed with a lot of people and myself is you worry all the time. And so instead I have this thing that I call worry time which is like, I can only worry about it for the, like, I, I'll i sit down for one hour and I'll, that's will be my worry time. And so I'll like say, all right, let's make a plan on what I think success looks like and what I need to do. Let's go through my risk analysis and let's do all this and let's make a decision. All right, are we doing it or are we not doing it? If we are in fact doing it, I move forward and I don't worry anymore. I go, I don't worry until the number in my bank account hits this or this other threshold is met in our risk analysis, then I will not even worry, but I move to the protect the downside plan. So like there's, I don't really spend any time worrying about it other than like the time I've allocated to worrying about something. What's been a recent moment where you've had to go through this process? I'm going through that a little bit now, but it's kind of a boring example, but I'm also trying to decide where I'm going to live once I have a family. A lot of it was like when I started and sold my company, the, or when I started and sold the most recent company, we were doing really well and COVID happened. And then like the George Floyd thing was going on. So like, it felt like the world was coming to an end because I lived where a lot of riots were. And then also I got Lyme disease and I woke up one morning and my face was paralyzed and I thought I had a stroke. Two weeks into all this happening, HubSpot called wanting to buy the company. And I was like, okay, I could hang on to the company and we could keep growing and potentially sell for blank. Or I could take this money now and get out, but I'm going to miss out on potential upside. And so I structured a deal. So I was able to like capture a little bit of both that met my like risk analysis that made me very comfortable with my risk analysis, like setup. And so I made the right decision. Frankly, like once I kind of quit drinking and, and started getting some momentum, my life has been awesome. Like it's mostly been easy. It felt like it was hell the first, uh, from ages like 16 to like 23. And then once I like started like seeing progress and I had the mindset of like, I can do anything, even the really bad days aren't that bad. So I've been very lucky. Going back to, we talked about risk and we you talked about, you know, selling your, your business and how 
you know, since sobriety and cutting out alcohol, things have become much more simpler and, and better for you. But a lot of people um, in, rec- you know, in recovery or people who are trying to get sober, they struggle in those early days. And it seems like based on your story. I struggle too, by the way, I, yeah. there was struggle. Yeah. It, but it seems like you, you struggle, but you also like had a lot of forward momentum and progress as well that got you like moving in the right way. What did those like first few months look like for you? And then how did you get involved in like the personal development space? You I mean, you mentioned um, like the hustle con and how you had these speakers from all these incredibly successful companies. And, you know, that was right around the time, I think when you were getting sober as well. So how did that all kind of come together? I read the book, how to win friends and influence people when I was like in sixth grade. And that kind of like changed everything for me because I remember like reading this book because I, I had friends, but I feel like I never like was well liked. And I was like, I'm embarrassed because of that. I want to, I want to be well liked. And so I saw this book called how to win friends and influence people. And I was like, that spoke to me. And then I like deployed the tactics and I was like, oh, wow, I'm more likable when I like, you know, do whatever the book says, like people will trust me more and I I care more about other people. And so that kind of like put me down this rabbit hole of like what other books can teach me things. And if I just apply this stuff and then I just got really into like, I'm not going to invent anything new. I'm just going to steal really cool ideas and strategies from people who have written about it. And that's how I'm going to live my life. And so once I learned that, I realized the similar stuff was in business where I'm like obsessed with capitalism and business because whether you like it or not, it ain't going any, it ain't going anywhere, at least in America, it's here to stay. And getting a lot of capital and money is arguably the easiest way to like make really big changes in your environment. And I think it's also one of the most practical ways to like move forward in life. Um, and so I got obsessed with like, well, this book told me that if I do this, this, and this, I'll, I could potentially have an outcome of this and I did it and I got the outcome I wanted. What other outcomes do I want and who else can I read about and steal from? And a lot of it was business people. And so I got kind of obsessed with that. And so I taught myself how to write. I was really interested in writing because I realized that like, if you use the written word effectively, it's all about persuasion and you could influence people to do anything. A really good poem or something could influence you to feel a certain way, or like a really good book could like make you think about a certain topic. A really good speech writer could make you vote a certain way that, or or a copywriter could make you buy something. I love that idea. So I learned how to write. And then I figure I had sold one company. I didn't make much money, but I made enough that I could live for a year. And I had a bunch of free time and I was like, let me create this conference and we'll call it HustleCon and I'll do it to meet a bunch of successful people. So hopefully one of them can like point me in the direction of what my next business should be. Or maybe at the event, I'll meet someone, but like, let me just kill time and do this. And maybe I'll find the way in the process. And I created this newsletter where I would write about the people who are coming to speak at the conference. And in the first six weeks, like I had the idea on day zero. And then after six weeks, the event happened. I made like 60 grand in profit. And it was mostly from me being decent at writing in, in, in the newsletter, selling tickets. And I thought that was really cool. And I made people feel a certain way and they came. And then I did it again when I ran out of that money. And then I did it again. And that's how I started that conference business. Now, the downside of a conference business is like all your money comes from like two or three days. And so like if it rains or someone gets sick, like it's, it sucks. And so that's why I was like, all right, I'm going to pivot the business into this new thing, which is what the hustle was. 
but I got into the conferences almost as a way just to like help my own problem and hopefully not lose money along the way. And that's how I started meeting all these really cool people. And I also lived in San Francisco from 2012 to 2018, or sorry, 2012, 2020. And that was like a magical time. And so like a lot of the big name companies that you know about in tech, like it was cool being able to hang out with the people that was building that. And it really just empowered me uh, to the point of like, anything is possible. I just like got drunk on that idea. I called myself the manifest cowboy because I was like <laughs> from Missouri and people thought I was Southern, but like, I just got obsessed with this idea of like turning ideas into reality. Like whether that means fitness or business or meeting someone, whatever, like that, the idea of just like taking action and being impulsive about, I have to act in order to get to where I want to go. And I can't sit still like that, that became an obsession. You touched on the fact that these conferences and creating these things helped give you clarity and direction on where to head next, like professionally and, and helped you personally. Like, did they also help you like in early sobriety? Like how, what did you do to, to stay so sober early on? Did you go to meetings? Did you end up going into any kind of treatment? Like what helped you? I went to a, um, a treatment thing in college because I went to the doctor and I was like, man, I'm really effed up. Like I'm have this issue and they're like, let's check your blood pressure. And it was so high. They were like, you gotta go to the hospital right now. I get to the hospital and they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, I can't stop. I, I can't quit. And they're like, well, you're going to fucking die. And I was like, uh, bring it on. Uh, I don't know. Like I was, I it didn't catch. And then I moved out to San Francisco and the whole Airbnb thing happened. And I'm like, dude, if I don't get my shit together, like this is all over, like I'm done for. And so I quit. And then I relapsed and I like three months later, and then I started, I went to a handful of meetings while I was like still drinking. And I was like, let me see what this is all about. Because I met this guy named Joe who had a successful business, was always the life of the party. Girls always liked him. And I talked to him and he's like, you're, he's like, oh, I don't drink. I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, oh, wow. You called yourself that? That's fucking crazy but he normalized it for me. He's like, yeah, I am. But like, I still have fun. And like that inspired me so much. So I went to a meeting and uh, eventually um, after one bender, I woke up sore and I was like, screw it. And I locked myself in my bedroom and I called out of work for two weeks. And I was like, I'm just, I'm cold Turkey in this son of a gun. And eventually I didn't have a lot of money. I went to a homeless clinic basically in, in San Francisco. And I remember like pulling up and I had like iPod or, my Apple headphones and an iPhone and like a barber jacket. That's like a $300 jacket. And I was in a room full of crazy people like off the streets. And I was like, this is exactly where I belong. Like, I don't know how, like I've been able to stay off the streets. There was times where it was close, but like, I, I belong with these crazy people because I'm crazy. And so I went to this doctor, her name was Jocelyn. And she was my doctor for like 10 years after that, even once I got money and I just had to pay her privately. Uh, that was my doctor. And so I just stayed with her for uh, a long time. She kind of like gave me some medicine and helped me get straight. Congrats on that, man. That's awesome. I mean, it's so inspiring what you've managed to build like along the way of getting sober. Like a lot of times, you know, people will get, you know, sober and they'll be sober for some time and then they'll come up with their big idea and they'll start something like you kind of did this in conjunction with that, which is really impressive. Well, I, I was only mildly successful when I was partying. In fact, I wouldn't even say I was that successful. Somehow I weaseled my way into things, but I never, I didn't, I didn't do a good job of sticking to stuff and having long-term vision because like when you're messed up, like, it's like, I don't want to get out of bed. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it was hard. Yeah. But once I quit drinking, that's when like the true success came. Now it's like, 
and when I say success, I don't just mean money. That's part of it. But like, I just mean of like, you set a target, you set up, make a plan and you follow through that, that that's what I mean by success. I got really good at that. How have you, like, has you like selling the business? Like, have you, like, is there anything that you thought that would give you that it didn't like meaning if you thought you made a bunch of money that would get rid of this problem or do this? Like, have you had to deal with any, any of that stuff since selling your business? So I'll say something that not a lot of people say, which is having money definitely makes you happier. Mm. Like knowing that you have a safety net, 100% makes you feel better. You still have some problems. There's still a lot of problems. You still get sad and depressed just like everyone else. But like knowing that like, look, if I don't do anything or if everything I do in the future fails, my family is provided for. I will always have a really nice house. My children will always be handled. My wife is always going to have whatever she needs. Like you feel better that way. There's no doubt about that. I think what I learned, and this is like kind of a shitty feeling that I learned was you always want more. So I told myself when I was 22, my goal is to have this much money at the age of 30. I got that much money. And I was really pumped for about a year and a half. And then I'm like, and I thought, I don't need any more. I'm done. And then you hang out with richer people than you. And you think it's never enough. You always have to go more. And I've hung out with billionaires that say, yeah, but this guy's got 10 or, you know what I mean? Like you, the, so that's like a weird feeling is that knowing that it's, it's never enough, which is the same thing as like any athlete, right? You're like, well, I bench press 300 pounds, but I bet I can do 305. You know what I mean? It's like a very similar feeling. And so I think you can use that in a really healthy way. A very fortunate thing is having some amount of money. I don't know what that number is. I definitely think it makes you happier. The unfortunate thing is you always want more, I think. And so right now you could easily not work, right? And just kind of just go yeah. and do your own thing. And, but you don't, I mean, you got other businesses, I, right? I took and six, I took six months off. I did, I did, all I did was train and work out for six months. And so what keeps you going now? Is it this pursuit of, of more money or do you have this deep rooted purpose and mission still in, inside of you to keep moving forward? Well, it's not, definitely not about the money in that it's just some, like, I don't need money anymore to like live a certain way, but I pursue money just because it's really fun to have a goal. But money is like the third most important thing. Um, number one is I just love having a team and to like have a shared like goal and to be in the trenches with employees. That's exciting. Not working is quite lonely. It's not like your friends are going to hang out with you. Um, like it's a very lonely, it's quite lonely. And, and I think, I don't know how women feel, but a man, I imagine you have to have something to work towards. I think men, like we are hunter gatherers. And it is my job to go out and hunt. And if I'm not hunting, I feel like a piece of crap. Not like hunting with my teammates. That's exciting. That feels fun. Uh, and then the second thing is I've had some good success and I'm very proud of that, but I want to do it times 10 because it feels so exciting and so like adrenaline filled and dopamine filled in order to pull off something huge. It almost feels like this sounds bad, but I'll say it, but like when you're starting a business, it almost feels like I'm a criminal. Like imagine like a bunch of like, cause I used to like do a bunch of bad stuff. Imagine you're about to rob a ho home and you break in with your friends and you get it and you come home and you got the money. Like you feel intoxicated. You're like, I just pulled off a freaking caper. Like they, I can't believe I got one over on them in a way building a business sometimes feels like that. Of course, the goal is to do things very ethically and to provide value to other people. But it feels like, I can't believe I pulled that off. It's that like same feeling. Uh, and I like get a high on that. And the bigger the, and uh, it gets, it's like you're gambling more and more. And I love that feeling. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm starting more stuff. And the money is like number three, number four, number five. It's somewhere at the bottom where it's like a nice little 
cherry on top type of vibe. I mean, as things are coming full circle, I mean, now people can, I guess, understand why the same thing that made you an alcoholic has made you successful in business. It's that rush to just go and not be afraid to take risks and keep going and get the thing and then move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, just progression. I just love progression. And so it's, it was a, a similar thing with alcohol, which is like, I think I could drink this. Like that's what a lot, you know what the worst thing to bring to a party is? Is a breathalyzer, like a test. <laughs> yeah. Because everyone's like, oh, let's see if I can get the highest. Let's see if I can get the highest. It's like the same thing with, when it comes to drugs and alcohol sometimes where it's like, let's see how much I can do uh, and still be all right. And so it's definitely like a similar vibe about like constant progression. I think everyone kind of has that fire in them. Maybe some people, the fire is a little brighter than other people, but you know, the, just the idea of like contribution. I think we all have that in order to contribute, you got to like progress. So I think it, everyone has it. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, I became a personal trainer and then started my own personal training business. And um, I've been in recovery for almost like 15 years, but I was a drug dealer. Like I sold drugs. And I've realized that over the years that I saw, I sold a bunch of weed and I got around, I got, I went to jail for selling pot. Like I did 90 days and that's what fitness actually changed my life when I was actually in jail. Just like in a, in a county jail? In a county jail. My sentence was five years. I was backing up five. I, they suspended everything, but the 90 days and I had to do that. Which and county or which city? Uh, Hartford County in Maryland. Oh man. Okay. Uh, yeah. That sucks, right? County jail sucks. Oh, dude, it's worse. But I think that I don't know what was worse. What was worse was like in being in the holding cell and not knowing where you were going, you know, and just sitting in there while you were waiting about the to find out like what was gonna happen to me. Or then you you got people just crammed in there, and I'm like detoxing because I was a a pillhead. I was an opiate addict, and so during my first few weeks in jail, I detoxed cold turkey from from the oxycodone, which was like the most horrific like, few weeks of my life. Yeah, and I just. I didn't think I was going to come out on the other side of it. And thankfully my cellmate got me into working out and it completely transformed my life when I was in jail. Well, what was the workup? Just push-ups and sit-ups and standing squats and burpees. Yeah. And then we would fill up um, like a plastic bag with water and we would do like bicep curls and we could use it as a punching bag, dips, step-ups on the bench, jumping jacks, running. But when I first started exercising, I couldn't even do a push-up from my knees at all. Like I would collapse couldn't walk up and down the steps because I was a heavy cigarette smoker as well. But my cellmate just, he just, for some reason knew how to, to work with people like me and taught me the importance of small steps. And it, it, the first thing was getting me to be able to hold myself up in like a push-up position, then doing a push-up and then building off of that. And the same thing with, with running. So I got taught early on, like the value of staying disciplined and compounding small wins and like where all that leads. But were, were, are there any yoke guys in jail? You think? Yeah, for sure. Which is like, it's so fascinating to me because people are like, oh, you can't use your body. You need to lift weights. And it's like, I mean, yeah, lifting weights is great. And I lift weights, but I saw some jacked dudes in jail. How do they get, how do they get enough food? I think they just, they eat what they can. I mean, I'm sure sometimes they have a hard time getting enough calories, but if they can afford it, there's this thing called commissary where yeah. it's like the jail like store or whatever. And so you can eat fairly enough, but I mean, just somehow these guys... They, they made it work when I was in there. Probably some of them are just freaks, just genetic freaks too. But just like it is, I love seeing all those ripped dudes in jail. It, it is kind of, it, it just shows you don't need a lot of fancy stuff. I like that. No. And it was like, I was what I wanted. I mean, I was always like the fat kid growing up who had no luck with girls who wanted to be liked, but I wasn't. And I saw this guy who looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt and Fight Club. And I was like, I want that. Like I want biceps. I want abs. I want to be able to do push-ups. I want to feel confident and like, thankfully, he was able to, to kind of help me when I was in there. That's badass. How many, like, 
were any of the people there like like uh like freaks when it came to push-ups like could people do like two or three hundred in a row yeah he could i mean it was mainly just me and him that would work out consistently i mean there was a couple other people that would throughout the time there but yeah he was like i mean he would do like thousands of push-ups a day because you had nothing else to do and he would do like pull-ups on there there was like steps that would go up from the first level up to the second level in the tier we were in and he would do like pull-ups on the the step and he would put like his feet up on this um like a step the steps beneath and do like rows and stuff it was pretty crazy some of the stuff that that he taught me when I was in there. But I think a lot of what he taught me and the most important things were these, the ability to manage like these difficult emotions and discomfort, because before I went to jail, I didn't know how to manage my emotions. I had panic attacks. I actually actually ended up in the hospital twice because I thought I was having a heart attack, but they were panic attacks when I was younger. And when I got to jail, there was no more, there was no more hiding from that. I couldn't escape because if I screamed or I you know, acted out, I could have been in solitary confinement. I wasn't a fighter. I mean, I was always the kid that was afraid to fight. So that wasn't going to happen. I couldn't do drugs in jail. And so it taught me that even though like the feelings and emotions were tough, that I needed to choose something else. I couldn't choose drugs. So me learning how to exercise and run and stuff like that was super transformative for me. Damn, that's awesome. Yeah. I like hearing about a lot of those prison guys and just like, cause there's some freaks of natures in there. I like, I love I, I, I love freaks, just anyone who's weird, whether it's athletic or brain or whatever. So I like seeing some of these weirdos. It, it, it makes me, it gets me pumped. Yeah, he definitely got me pumped. I mean, and people in there were like, you know, it's just a lot of these guys are just in there for just trying to do their time and make the most of it and then get out of there and hopefully go home and see their families and, you know, not get more time. But the guy that that mentored me, he was just somebody that really took a strong interest in me and was just incredibly jacked i mean like if you see if you saw pictures of what he looked like i mean he passed away last year but he was so 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 shredded and it's like just insane how shredded he was yeah I, i've always like watched videos of it's called like prison workouts and shit like that i like looking at all those last question i have for you is you talked about how you're the the manifest you're the manifesting cowboy and i came across the way that you craft emails like I think it was sometime last year and I was like, man, I'm doing this all wrong. Like, I'm like, Hey there, nice to meet you. Like I'll meet, you know, it's like super, it was like, I remember you provided an example and just like, don't do this, do this. And I was like, I was always in the don't do this, you know, everyone is right. And, and so there's a lot of people that, that are listening to this and whether it's a bit in business or in, in something personal, they're trying to always communicate better, whether that's DMing somebody on Instagram, whether that's sending out a cold email like what are a few tips you would give somebody that can make their like online communication more effective if they're, if they're trying to get in touch with somebody that's busy? The easiest one is called ADA, attention, interest, desire, action. And that's like a template in order to grab someone's attention and get them to do what you want them to do. It's like the most classic thing ever. But like an example would be like, if I wanted to make you drink more water, if I said like, drink water because it's good for you. That's one way to do it. Or if I said, Hey, do you ever see those big guys walking around the gym with gallon water bottles? That's my attention getting thing. So I grabbed your attention. Mm. The interest is like, you see, they're doing that because drinking a gallon of water a day increases your muscle size by 30% over a year time. That's not true, by the way, I'm just making this up. Uh, and then the desire is, uh, you make them want it. And so you give you list features. So like if you drink more water, that means that you'll have better skin, which means you'll be able to get more girls. Your muscles will get 30% bigger. So if you weigh 150 
uh, pounds now, that means you're going to weigh 190 of pure muscle and you'll save $10,000 a year because that is how much you spend on non-water beverages. And then the uh, action, so ADA, uh, attention, interest, desire, action is like, so if you want to drink more water, here's what you do. Go get a one gallon milk jug. You can use that for 30 days, fill it up each time in the morning, every single morning and drink it by 7 PM. So it's like a specific, very specific formula where it ends with a very specific action. But another thing that people really screw up with when they communicate with people is they don't balance the perfect combination of professional and casual. A lot of people think that when you're selling stuff, because it's like a, in a professional setting, that that means that like you have to be uptight and nerdy and vanilla and all that shit. The reality is, is that a person is a person. You aren't one human being from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and 5 p.m. to midnight. You're one whole person, meaning you like to joke around. You like to say, what's up, man? Like you, you can, but you don't want to be like, yo, bro, that's a little <laughs> bit too casual, but you got to find that perfect balance of like, hey, what's going on? I'm going to be short. I do this, which means this will happen to your business. If you buy this, if you want to talk, I'm free tomorrow at noon. Just say yes. Uh, worst case scenario, you have a new friend in the industry. Best case scenario, maybe we make a bunch of money together. Talk soon. Like something that short can do a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uses the ADA formula. So selfishly, like if I were trying to get better at getting guests on my show, like would I, would I lead with something like that and then talk about like my, how many people listen to my show and stuff like that? To 100%. Get yeah. And you, well, you have to like figure out what motivates people. So usually it's ego or it's beneficial. So like if, because if I don't know how big your show is, but if you can't like some shows like Joe Rogan, he's like 5 million people listen to every episode. It's like, dude, that's all you got to say. I'm in. But if you're not that big uh, and you aren't going to have a lot of benefits, you'd be like, Hey, do you want to come on my podcast? Here's all, here's a bunch of the cool people who have come on already. If you come on, we're going to talk about this topic, this topic, and this topic. All you have to do is say, yes, you involve zero preparation. I'll send you a link and we'll schedule the time and it will show up and it only takes 45 minutes. So you like usually something like that, I think would work a lot better than what other people typically do. Yeah. Cause I'm typically, Hey, my name is so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. And then I'm all, I got to get better at it. Cause when I'm reading well, pitches coming in, I'm like, dude, get to the point already. Yeah. Because here's the thing the the whole thing with copywriting is comes down to one thing, which is no one cares about you. They only care about themselves. And once you understand that, it makes persuasion so much easier. So Mm. all I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how I'm going to help you. And all you have to do is say yes, and I'll handle the rest. So I'm going to make it frictionless. And all you have to do is say yes. And I'm going to appeal only to your ego and your wants. It's all about you. It's not about me. So like, I don't need to say like, I've been in the game for this long. I have these many episodes. Like, dude, shut the fuck up. I don't care about you. I only care about me. Make me look cool. Get me more customers. I want to talk about a topic that I've never talked about. I want to talk. I want to come on because all these other cool people have been on. So that's going to make me also cool. I want to come on because you're going to reach a ton of people. I can get my message across. It's all about me. It's not about you. And so that's typically like the way to write. That's a great way for us to leave it. And I'm definitely going to be taking notes as I re-listen to this. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on. I know your time is valuable. Um, and I know the audience is really going to appreciate um, this episode, you, you dropped a lot of wisdom. You dropped a lot of like just tactical things that people can use and implement into their lives. But if people want to connect with you, if they want to listen to the podcast, um, if they want to learn more about what you're doing, if they want to get involved in some of your businesses, what's the best, where, where's the best place to do that? My Twitter and Instagram, where I post a bunch of stuff and I guess my threads, my Facebook threads, that's the Sam Parr. And then my company is called Hampton. So joinhampton.com. 
uh, just check it out. If you're, if you run a company that does at least like 3 million in revenue, it might be interesting to you, but that's it. Awesome, man. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We talked a lot about sobriety. We talked a lot about business. We talked a lot about life. We talked a lot about emotional health. We talked a lot about persuasion. We talked a lot about Sam's story. So whatever your biggest takeaway was, make sure to tag Sam and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.